I didn't think of it that way, of risking your life going to work. But seeing my colleagues pass away in our own ICU, it's just heartbreaking. Please stick with us for a while and just make our lives a little bit easier and then we can all be together again. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. everybody, I'm Chloe Maidley and welcome back to the podcast series three. For those of you that don't know, this is the podcast where I speak to professional athletes, coaches, physique competitors and all experts in the field of health and fitness. I'm really excited that you guys are joining me. So without further ado, here we go. Hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast. Today I think this is the most excited I've ever been to have anyone on. We have on the number one leader in the field of physique science right now, in my humble opinion. I have actually wanted to have him on for the last few series, but I never thought, given that he's across the pond, that I would actually get him here. So safe to say I'm beyond excited. He is a PhD, a professor, and an active scientist at USF joining us all the way from Florida. Please welcome to the podcast, Bill Campbell. Hi, Bill. Hello. Thank you for, one, your passion and excitement, and two, <laughs> for having me on today. I, I honestly, so people don't realize, um, I've been emailing and messaging Bill on um, Instagram, and he got back super quick. And given how busy he is, that's just phenomenal, and has been like, just is like happy to oblige everything I've asked him. <laughs> so honestly, like you're such a good egg. And yeah, I, I suppose first and foremost, do you want to just tell everybody what it is that you do, and maybe even how this all came about for you in the first place? Sure, yeah. So I'm currently I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida. And I also direct the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. Before I did that, I, when I was younger, I went to college and I got a degree in marketing. And my first job was to sell herbicides and pesticides. So basically I sold things that killed weeds and bugs. And I didn't really love that. I was not, <laughs> you can imagine I wasn't passionate about killing bugs. <laughs> <laughs> but I did love sports nutrition. I loved bodybuilding at that time, um, different diets. So I decided in my, I guess, early 20s, I, I should probably do something that I'm actually passionate about. So fast forward like six or seven years, I had to go back to school, start from scratch, <laughs> no science classes. So had to take anatomy and physiology, biochemistry, chemistry, all of these prerequisites. Got into a master's program in exercise physiology, then stayed at that university, which was Baylor University, got my PhD in exercise and nutrition. I, I got married right almost as soon as I started my master's program. And when we got done, my wife said, I don't care where you work or where we live. It just has to be hot. <laughs> <laughs> that drastically shrunk my, my options. So that's primarily the reason we ended up in Florida was, was because she loved the hot weather. And I've been here for 13 years and absolutely love what I do. And I'll just give a little background. 
the research that I do, I like to explain it as it, it, my goal is for it to help people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So that is not necessarily bodybuilders and it's not obese people. It's more for people who are fit, who want to get a little leaner or who want to build a little more muscle. So that's kind of the niche that I'm in. And I study bodybuilders and I used to study obese, um, obese populations in grad school. So I learned from bodybuilders because they're the experts in fat loss. I just learned how to make it more maintainable. And I think you're speaking to the vast majority of my audience who are that exact bracket. Um, if people want to follow you uh, on Instagram, which is where you put up a lot of references to your studies and also just, I mean, um, <laughs> quite humorous, brilliant kind of physique posts and questions. You are, you're at Bill Campbell PhD. Is that right? Correct. Yep. At Bill Campbell PhD. And that's the only place I'm at currently. Talk to me for a minute about Florida, because I feel like Florida right now is just the hotbed for kind of health and fitness, uh, big, big voices um, on social media, but also just online. I, I, is there a reason why everybody seems to gravitate there? I don't know. I mean, in my little world, we have Lauren Conlon, Paul Revelia, Will Grazion. So we have people that are kind of these elite level coaches that all live near me. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe all of these influencers are kind of in, in your network or what you see. But Miami Beach is a, you know, you know, it's an international city and beach where really fit people live. So that probably helps. Yeah, I love Florida. I'm, I'm very blessed to live here. So I've kind of been going there since I was a little girl. And I have to say that it is one of my favorite places in the world. And it's so funny because when I tell other Americans that, 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 that they're like, Florida's a swamp. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a beautiful kind of Caribbean-esque tropical swamp, which I am down to live in. <laughs> yes. It, it's a little too humid for my taste. Through a lot of the year, if I go outside, I'm pretty, I get pretty sweaty. So that's the only thing I wish it wasn't as humid. All right, let's get to it. The first thing I want to ask you is um, talk to me about your new protein intake study, because I know that you've got tons of previous research, um, specifically proving that higher protein intakes increase uh, muscle mass significantly in resistance trained women, which I think, you know, we would all hope and expect to be the case. Um, but do you want to just talk us through this, the findings of that initial study, uh, given that my audience is so kind of physique focused? We published that study in 2018. And what we did was we took resistance trained females, the majority of which were aspiring female physique athletes. So that means that some of them had already competed, mostly as a bikini, some as a figure competitor. And most of the other subjects were planning to compete in the next year. So that was the population. So resistance trained females. And the reason my, my lab focuses a lot on females, not a lot of other labs do. So almost all of my leadership in my lab is females. So it's, um, I kind of, I, one thing I've learned is at the age of early twenties, females tend to be a lot more mature than males. So for whatever reason, they're act, they're they're better managers. They're they're and they get they're not represented well in the profession. Most of the you know just in, in probably in your space, most of the attention it's male dominant. So I try, I'm smart because I realize they're better managers at least at this age. They do great work. So I was like, well, then run my lab and you know and and help me be better at what I do. So that's part of the reason why I, I focus on females and why this study was in females. And what we did in that study was we, we had them in two groups. We told one group, 
you have to eat at least 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. You may not go lower than that. The other group we said, you may not eat more than 1.2 grams per kg. So what, what actually happened was the low protein group only ate 0.9 grams per kg. The other group actually ingested 2.5 grams per kg. And this was for an eight week period while they resistance trained in my lab. So we watched them and we, every, but every subject had a personalized nutrition coach. And our research question was simple. Does higher protein intakes improve body composition? Does it increase muscle mass? And we, we found that it did. There was a significant increase in muscle mass. The surprising thing was that group that gained a significant amount of muscle also lost body fat. And they increased their calories by nearly 300 calories per day during these eight weeks. So that made me realize, well, a couple other studies have also reported this. Um, I'm aware of about three or four other studies that showed that when you increase protein, you actually lose body fat in resistance trained people. It only happens with people that are resistance training. So that was very intriguing. So that that was the first study. Often what I tell my clients is to go for two grams of protein per one kg of lean body mass. And I say, if you don't know your lean body mass, just go on a goal weight. Um, now, it's really funny. And we will talk about kind of the climate of coaching in the UK at the moment. But a lot of people will often come back at me and tell me that this is too high and nobody needs to go that high. And obviously, I have my arguments as to why I strongly disagree with that. Can I just ask you just about the kind of the upper limit of protein intake, where you would say it is and why? just quickly you would put it there yeah so it's funny when people argue with me i don't argue i'm like all right well don't eat it <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> good response yeah i'm not gonna lose any sleep but it's really on when we say and i'll keep it global for a second when we say high protein these are for people who want to optimize their physiques if you don't really care about trying to add a little muscle or possibly trying to lose a little bit of body fat, I don't, you don't need high protein. This is for a, the, the group of people who want to have a certain look or, a, or want to optimize their physique. So we'll start there. The research consensus is that you need 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass, which is lower than what I recommend. But that amount, according to the researchers that study this, they would say, and I agree, that will kind of optimize your muscle mass gains. Mm -hmm. So if you eat more protein than that, I don't think you can expect to gain more muscle. So why do I recommend 2.2 grams per kg? So I'll talk about that. Well, one is I like to keep things simple. And 2.2 grams per kg for Americans is one gram per pound. Very simple. What's your weight? Eat that much in protein. So I'm a simple yeah. guy. So th that's part of my reasoning. The other reasoning is we have multiple studies, one of them being from my lab, that would suggest that higher protein intakes, around 2.2 grams per kg, will actually cause fat loss if you're also resistance training. So I think there's another side of this equation. It's not always about muscle mass. It's also about uh, reducing fat mass. And then finally, I'm hungry. I, I, I can eat a lot. And I'm going to get closer. I can eat a lot. <laughs> yep, same, same. <laughs> yeah, I don't enjoy being hungry. So I find that as has a lot of research, not all of it, some would say protein doesn't help with hunger. Other research would, would, has reported that protein does help you feel fuller. Yeah. So 
I think higher protein intakes uh, for myself help with my hunger. So would say some of the research. And there's no research that says higher proteins are going to make or worse for your hunger. It's always yeah. they're no better or it's it is better. And then, of course, you, you need higher proteins as you get older, you know, into your 50s, 60s, 70s, the, the levels go up to get the same benefit as when you were younger. Oh, brilliant, brilliant answer. And um, I'm really, really happy I asked you that. And just one other thing, um, I have actually quoted that study before the increase in calories being say around you know 300 calories more uh based on an increase in protein and seeing body fat actually go down obviously that the caveat and the crux of that is in resistance trained individuals do you, can you just really quickly kind of give your uh, theory as to why that would have happened given that quote unquote calories are king yeah what i think happened it or what happens is by resistance training, you're creating a stimulus on the body to build more muscle. Well, that stimulus of building more muscle also takes a lot more energy, a lot more calories to do that. So when you're eating this additional protein, it's not being stored as fat. It's actually increasing more muscle mass. And we think that it increases your, your energy expenditure, what we call like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you're likely releasing more heat or more energy throughout the day. So again, you're eating extra calories, but it's not being directed towards fat. In fact, it's causing for whatever reason, probably more fidgeting, more moving, um, greater heat production. It's just causing more energy in the form of calories to be released, which would cause the fat loss. But that's theoretical. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, a comprehensive daily nutritional beverage. With so many stresses in life, it can be really difficult to get in enough fruit and veg, aka your micronutrients, that your body really needs. This is where Athletic Greens can come in and help. Their daily all-in-one greens powder is simply added to your day-to-day -day life with zero fuss. Just one scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, a multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more, all working together to fill in any nutritional gaps that might be in your diet. It can increase energy, focus, increase digestion, and will support a healthy immune system without the need for you to take multiple supplements or worry too much. Athletic Greens is one formula based on the latest research, investing in absorbable and natural sources of each ingredient and going above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure that their customers receive a high-quality supplement. It is paleo, it's vegan, it's dairy-free and gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar. And right now, Athletic Greens will support your immune system during the winter months by offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So whether you're looking for performance or health, just cover your bases with Athletic Greens and it will help you achieve it. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash podcast and join health experts, athletes and people around the world who want to make a daily commitment to their health. Again, you simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash podcast and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. 
my next part of the question, which is about the new study. So the new study is specifically for non-resistance trained females to see if the increase in protein will improve their physique as well. Yes. The natural follow-up is we've shown that higher protein helps resistance trained females, but this study takes it two steps in the other direction. It says, well, what about non-resistance trained? Does it, is it going to help them? I don't know, but we've designed a really good study. And I don't know if you know Dr. Eric Trexler, if you've heard of him, but he helped us design this study, as did my research coordinator, Gianna Mastrofini and Dr. Rob Wildman. So the four of us kind of designed this study. The other thing that we wanted to do with this study is back to my philosophy of helping people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. In my first study, they had to track their macros every single day for eight weeks while they're resistance training. I don't mind tracking my macros, but I can understand that's obsessive for some people. And it's a big new habit to undertake. Mm -hmm. So in our new study, we have three groups. We have one group who's not changing anything. Don't, don't track. Don't, we don't care. Just lift weights for the first time. And let's see how, how much your body changes. The other group we're saying track all of your macros and track so that you get at least 2.2 kg of protein. So they're going to have to adopt the habit of tracking. But this middle group, we're saying, we don't want you to track. We want to see if you can do this through a more simple manner, a more lifestyle friendly approach. And what we're asking you to do is just simply increase your protein. Do you have eggs for breakfast? Well, eat double the amount of eggs. Do you have fish twice a week? We'll increase that to four times per week. So anything we can help them, and we will help them identify where the protein is in their diet. We just want them to double those portions. And if if they get a benefit, let's say there's let's I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen here. One is that increasing protein does not help this population. The other thing is that the group that's tracking does just as well as the group who doesn't track. Well, then there's a strong argument to say. You don't have to track if you don't want to. Just be conscious of your protein sources and double them. So that's that's why we have this group. And we're start we had we already started this study and we had to shut it down because of COVID in September. And now we're going to start it again in January. I love that you are thinking of it from a behavioral point of view and I think this is something this is a middle ground which we're in my opinion in the UK at least kind of slowly slowly working towards whether initially and I was in this bracket initially 10 years ago nine years ago when I started I really gave my clients like food bibles which listed different sources of proteins fats and carbs like extensive food bibles and then I gave them example meal plans of how to kind of eat optimally for their goals and I'd think about their calories and protein and divvy the rest up you know again according to their training and their goals obviously after a couple years I went full swing into tracking you know if it fits your macros flexible dieting whatever you want to call it and I basically started that's how I did the kind of nutrition for my clients and it's really interesting having done both for a period of years I realized that actually the solution for adherence is somewhere in between because you have to take into account the science obviously that's the foundation but then you have to take into account human behavior and I feel like you're one of the people kind of at, at the forefront of this at the science of this is actually saying and I will come to this in a minute because I do have a question on this well what about behavior like what about maintaining this lifestyle going forward and I find that really interesting have you had any people kind of express shock or surprise that you're doing this in a one of the groups is more intuitive eating based I don't think anybody you're saying has anybody reached out and are shocked that we're doing it like this 
Yeah, because to me, I think that's fantastic. And I don't know of any studies that do it like that on like with a group that's not so controlled. Yes. No, nobody's really challenged it. And it's funny you say that you're, you're appreciative of that I'm taking the psychology into consideration. And I'm not a psychologist. I kind of, I'm kind of like a hammer. And I, what I do is I say, if you do this with your diet and this with your exercise, this is what you get. This, I can help you tell you what I'm not good at is, is this psychology. I'm not real good at telling you, hey, try this strategy. Now this study, yes, we are at least investigating a group. But even then, I'm not getting into the mind through, um, well, I think we might be doing one psychological questionnaire. So I don't want to give you or anybody the impression that I'm a, this master psychologist who's helping people. No, I'm telling you, if you follow this program and this diet, on average, this is what you can expect. Now, I love psychology. I think it's really important. I just wasn't trained in psychology. And I don't really like the questionnaires there. It take too much. <laughs> I'd rather oh, I love that. If, I, if, if I have 10 minutes, I want to know how much fat you have, not what's going on in your head, but it's very important. Absolutely. hundred percent. It's part of the job when you coach, like you do kind of become a therapist and it's really hard to kind of straddle that line with clients of being like, okay, I'm going to help you behaviorally get through this. And also being like, this actually isn't something I'm qualified to help you with. It's really interesting. Recent In recent times, I've had to have that conversation a lot more than I ever have before, potentially just because my client base grew. So it's just numbers. Potentially, I don't know, because people in this 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 year are obviously much more aware of their mental health. And the next topic that I really want to talk to you about is your research and your findings specifically on diet breaks and refeeds. Please, can you just explain to my audience what these are and what you have found in your research? Yeah, so the, the broad concept is referred to as nonlinear dieting. So the best way to describe what that is, is to tell you what it is not. What most people do, they go on a diet and they stay on this diet week after week, month after month, and sometimes even year after year. So they, they are constantly trying to diet. Nonlinear dieting says globally, don't do that. Take a break from your diet. And if we take a one-week break or a two-week break, we refer to that as a diet break. If we take maybe one or two days off per week, from dieting, we call that a diet refeed. So those are the broad categories. And you can start going down a bunch of rabbit trails and talking about within the day, like time-restricted feeding, intermittent restriction, things like that. But globally speaking, you take a break for one or two weeks, it's a diet break. Take a break for only one or two days, it's a diet refeed. So we published a diet refeed study this past year, which I, I can elaborate on. And we just, we just finished data collection on a diet break study in resistance trained females. And we have not published that yet, but I can talk about both of them to some extent. So diet refeed research would tell me or tells us that most people eat more food on the weekends. And even if the research didn't tell us that I don't care because I eat more food on the weekends, at least I want to, I'm not as, you know, I'm not as regimented. My, that's when we, we go out to eat usually. So I naturally eat more food on the weekends. So going back to my philosophy, helping people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle, let's set something up that actually allows you to increase your food on the weekends, which you would naturally do anyway, but you can still lose weight, particularly fat loss. 
So he Lee, uh, one of my colleagues and somebody I highly respect, she's referred to this approach as the weekday diet. So essentially what it is, is you diet or reduce your calories Monday through Friday. And then Saturday and Sunday, you don't diet. Your calories are back to normal. And that's a key statement. It's not a free for all. I I say that it's not a food orgy. You can't just go crazy. (laughs) More of an increase in calories back to your maintenance levels, which is what you were eating before you dieted, such that you don't gain weight or lose weight. So let me explain what we did in the study. Two groups, resistance trained males and females. One group dieted for seven straight weeks. And what they did was they reduced their calories by 25% from their maintenance calories every day. And their resistance trained in my physique lab four days per week during this time. The other group, the refeed group also dieted for seven weeks, but we told them you're only going to diet for five days out of each week. And on the weekends, we want you to increase your calories back to maintenance levels, all in the form of carbohydrates. And what we found at the end of the seven weeks was the group that had the refeeds had a significant improvement in the amount of dry fat-free mass. We can just say dry muscle mass as compared to the other group. And they also lost less of their metabolic rate and they lost less of their muscle mass. And when I say dry, because we had them carb up, that can sometimes cause you to retain water. And that water could count as muscle mass. So we wanted to take away the water. We wanted to account for that. So we were able to do that because my lab has a, a, a machine that can measure your body water. So in this study, we found that the outcomes were better for maintaining muscle mass and your metabolic rate. And that's not surprising because metabolic rate is tied to how much muscle you have. One, one important thing, they had to diet more strictly Monday through Friday. So they actually had to reduce their calories by 35% because on the weekends, it went back up to 100%. And at the end of the seven-day period, it was an average of a 25% caloric reduction, which was the exact same as the other group. Not all research would suggest that this is superior like mine. Some research says it's it's no better. And my study and a few others would suggest that it is better than not taking breaks, but it is not universal. Fascinating. I, I personally and professionally, but more personally, because I haven't done this study, um, would agree that it is better because of, again, full circle back to what I was saying before, behavior and adherence. Um, that if you, so There's no point in giving your clients a diet or giving anyone a diet that they have a calorie deficit that they cannot stick to. You have to bear behavior in mind. And like with my clients, I, I usually will say, look, either you know, you can be in your deficit, you know, five days of the week and on the weekends, um, you can come back up to maintenance, but obviously the effects of the fat loss is going to, it's just going to take longer or you can bank a hundred calories a day, Monday through Friday. I don't like them doing more than that because I don't want to encourage like a binge restrict cycle. And then you'll have, you know, 500 calories extra to play with on the weekend, but you're completely right. The weekend is the thing universally that where people really kind of fall off track. I didn't think of it that way, of risking your life going to work. But seeing my colleagues pass away in our own ICU, it's just heartbreaking. Please stick with us for a while and just make our lives a little bit easier. And then we can all be together again. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. 
Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. I just wanted to ask you, this was a seven-week study, right? Yes. So let's just say, like, um, hypothetically, if it had been a seven-month study, would those maintenance calories uh, over the weekend have gotten lower as their kind of body mass kind of had decreased, or would you have kept it the exact same? So what we did was we kept it the exact same as the first week. Actually, we took a two-week average going into the diet. So we always took it back to the, that first two weeks. So we're still matching calories from seven weeks ago. So in theory, metabol- you know, maintenance calories could have been going down and we could have actually lowered them a little bit. That's, that's reasonable to me. Uh, we didn't do that because we didn't keep measuring throughout the, the study. Now, one thing that the research is pretty clear on, and when I say clear, there's only been, there's been less than 10 studies in this area. But it's important that you actually take a break from the diet. If you get to the weekend and you say, well, I don't want to go back to maintenance because I still want to lose fat. You're, you're, you're likely not doing yourself any favors. The research would suggest when this hel- is helpful, you are actually going out of a deficit. And we, let's just say back to maintenance, maybe even a slight surplus. And let me explain why that's important. The whole concept of why you would want to do a diet break or a diet refeed is because you have an appreciation for the negative aspects of dieting itself. Dieting itself is not good it, 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 if you're trying to optimize your, your physique, if you're trying to build muscle, it works against you. Reducing your calories works against you. Just a couple quick statements. Muscle protein synthesis goes down when dieting. Muscle protein breakdown goes up when dieting. Obviously, you get more irritable and you have all of the behavioral and just bad moods that come with dieting. Uh, the other thing is you get less of a, a transition from growth hormone to insulin-like growth factor one transition. So that's, again, that's an, anabo- that's an anabolic blunting that dieting induces. Uh, the other thing is we know that you in- decrease your metabolic rate, which is why you many people have to keep reducing their food more and more the longer they go into a diet. So these diet breaks and these diet refeeds, they exist to stop these negative outcomes or these negative consequences of dieting. So you don't want to shortchange that process by saying, which is tempting, well, I'm not going to go as much, I'm not going to go high during my break week, or I'm not, I don't, I want to keep dieting. That kind of goes against the entire philosophy or the entire strategy. Let me go where I think you're going to go next. <laughs> Most people, including myself, would say, okay, I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to take a break for a week and I'm going to go back to my maintenance calories. Won't I just ruin all of the progress that I just made during my weight loss, fa- you know, during these last three weeks or two weeks of dieting? And the research, including my own, which I haven't published yet, would suggest that no, you don't. Now, again, we're not going on a binge cycle during your break off. You're going back to what you think is your maintenance levels, maybe a slight surplus. What the, what I'll just speak to my research, what we just found. We found that on average in resistance trained females, they gained during a week break a quarter to at a little less than a half a kg of weight gain during that week. And at the end of an eight-week period, 
there was no difference in the amount of fat loss compared to a group who never took any diet breaks. So while it's in my mind, it's logical to think that you, that you would be taking a step backwards. The reality is you are not. And some research would suggest there's a study called the Matador study. They actually had much greater outcomes from taking a two week diet break such that when they went back on their diet, they lost a greater rate of fat in the weeks following. A great, a great study to know. And everybody who's listening, if you don't know about it, um, get to know about it because it's really fascinating in terms of the physique outcomes. Um, I actually kind of talked about this in a post that I did. This was a while ago. And I really got some pushback on social media for people basically telling me that things like metabolic adaptation were a myth and a calorie deficit was king without ever considering the nuances of behavior or the science of the body. So I just wanted to ask you if you could quickly talk about metabolic adaptation that occurs when dieting for a prolonged period of time and, and how, um, you know, what research shows that diet breaks and refeeds can actually really help you in that regard. Yeah. So, I guess we should define metabolic adaptation. I would define that primarily as a decrease in one's metabolic rate, but it could also be the fact that you're losing muscle mass. We could, we could start looking at individual hormones like thyroid hormones, um, a decrease in leptin production. So, but if we just focus on metabolism, there's no question that dieting reduces your metabolic rate. As you lose weight and as you reduce your calories, your metabolism slows down. I, mm-hmm. I, I can point to probably between five and 100 studies showing that that's happened, maybe thousands, if we look mm-hmm. at the obese literature. So metabolic rate does slow down. Now, my lab, we kind of have this intense focus on doing everything we can to preserve muscle mass and metabolic rate. And we do that through three different strategies. One, we do not do crash dieting. We take our time, a slow rate of weight loss. The second thing we've already talked about when dieting is you have to have a high protein intake. So we never reduce protein when dieting. We reduce calories, but not from protein. And then the the last thing or the third area is resistance training. We want to make sure that while we reduce our calories, we're resistance training because dieting is very catabolic, but, and there's not much of an anabolic stimulus when in a caloric deficit, but resistance training gives us some periods of anabolic stimuli in an otherwise catabolic time period of our lives. So globally, metabolic adaptation happens. The extent to which is highly variable. If you if you reduce your calories by 50% and you're going to do that for 2 months, you're going to experience significant metabolic adaptation. The more aggressive you are in your diet, the greater the rate of metabolic adaptation. If you take a slow response a slow approach, keep protein high, resistance training, I, you're doing everything you can to prevent metabolic adaptation from happening. So in our diet break study in resistance trained females, we didn't see much of a difference. And part of the reason we didn't see a difference may have been because we followed all of these rules. We never allowed metabolic adaptation to introduce its ugly head. Oh, such a fantastic answer. And, and for us, I think lasted, I think it March, April, May, June, July, five months. And obviously a lot of my clients were like, oh my God, I don't have weights at home. What am I going to do? And obviously, you know, 
I just basically was at pains to say to them, you keep your protein intake high. Um, if you've been in a deficit, come up, uh, back up to maintenance, and you just do everything you can with body strength and body resistance to keep resistance training, to keep hold of your muscle until we can get back in a gym. Um, and then we can manage dieting and being in a deficit while keeping your muscle mass intact through everything you've just said. And I, I, I know uh, that, you know, obviously when you go into a, a calorie deficit, the things that you manipulate in terms of your calorie intake could be proteins, fats, and or carbohydrates. And like you, I never let my clients drop below two grams per one kg of mass. I just don't let them do it. Fats and carbs are the, 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 the macros that I play with. And, and that's largely dependent on muscle mass, um, training, uh, hormonal issues. I know all the reasons why I do it, but do you have any general rules or approaches for how to put somebody in a calorie deficit and make sure that it's optimal still for kind of long-term physique goals? Yeah. So I'll start with, I'll never argue with somebody about taking a slow approach, but a lot of times a really slow approach does not manifest the outcomes that keep people motivated. So what, what I have found in looking at the research in lean people trying to lose body fat, and that is not a lot of studies, is kind of, it appears to me it's about a 25% caloric deficit. It seems to be about the most aggressive you, you want to be to induce fat loss and maintain muscle mass. Now, when I say a 25% caloric restriction, that also implies 1.8, two, maybe 2.2 grams per kg of protein. So we're still keeping protein high. But in the literature that I found in lean people, 30% and higher, almost always you start to lose a lot more muscle mass. And in my research studies, we always, almost always recommend about a 25% uh, sometimes it ends up being about 20%. And the outcomes are pretty good in resistance training populations in terms of almost all of the weight lost is coming from fat stores. It's just so fascinating. Okay, you know what, let's jump into something a little bit more abstract, uh, certainly for my followers. What are your views on time restricted feeding windows, intermittent fasting and and prolonged fasting from an optimal physique perspective? I start the the philosophy with what matters is total daily caloric intake. So what, what are the amount of calories you need to eat on a daily basis such that you won't gain fat? So I, I guess we need to set the stage. We're talking about somebody who doesn't want to gain fat. Is, is that a safe assumption? Yeah. Physique. Yeah. Body recomp, physique goals. Yeah. So as long as you're, let's just say in, in my case, it's 3000 calories. If I eat more than 3000 calories, I will gain fat. If I eat less than that, I will lose, I'll lose fat. I, and, and generally most, most people struggle with not or eating too much. So that's where I think time-restricted feeding, intermittent fat, any of these things, whatever, whatever would help somebody not go over their caloric intake threshold, I think it's worth experimenting with and worth trying. I don't think there is anything special about intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, any of that, I don't think they provide any type of benefit. And if they do provide a benefit, it's just helping people not overeat. So I'll give a practical example. I can easily overeat. <laughs> it's very easy for me to do. Okay, so you and me, are both, 
and and since I call, call myself a physique scientist, <laughs> I have to. I actually now I have to live some kind of lean lifestyle, I guess. Oh, but tell what, me about it. Tell. <laughs> what I found is, and I didn't even learn this probably till about six or seven years ago. I'm just not hungry in the morning. Like I, you always hear you have to eat breakfast. And I used to force feed myself breakfast. Oh, I got up. Why? Well, I got to eat breakfast because it's important. And the more I got studying into physique enhancement and caloric deficits and this space, I realized I'm not even hungry until like nine or 10. And I yeah. focus more if I don't eat. So I was like, why would I eat, you know, 800 calories at 630 in the morning? And now I'm going to be hungry the entire rest of the day. So what I've, where I've come to is I don't eat my first meal until about 10 a.m. And I kind of, you know, throughout the day, I have more food that I have throughout the day. And I look forward to that. And it really helps me is do I, so I, what do you call that? I guess people would say that I practice time restricted feeding. I would say, I, I'm saying really, I don't, I just have a late breakfast. Yeah. Um, call it whatever you want. It helps me maintain my my sanity or control my hunger. So the other thing I want, here's an assignment I do in my class. I actually have a physique science class for my students. One of the assignments is to challenge my students to not eat anything for an entire day. So you go to bed Tuesday night, you do not eat at all Wednesday, and you don't eat until Thursday morning. And the reason I do this assignment is I tell my students what we want to do with this, if you can even, if you can even do it, we want to find out when are you naturally hungry and when are you not? Because if you wake up and you're starving, well, then you probably know that you need to eat breakfast. But many of my students, just like me, they realized I wasn't even hungry. Man, I was starving at one or two o'clock, but you know, at four o'clock, I wasn't hungry. So I think it's a great way to, to get, you know, kind of treat your body as a scientific experiment. When am I naturally hungry? And if you can identify that, well, then that's when you should probably have your food, your meals. I completely second that. And I make my clients do that too. And the reason, part of the other reason um, that I make them do it is because I want to show them that it's okay to be hungry it's okay. You are going to survive. The human body is designed to survive starvation. Ironically, it's not designed to survive eating whatever we want, whenever we want, unfortunately, because I think you and I can both, you know, throw down. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a, a brilliant, brilliant thing. And I think everybody should kind of use their own body as a scientific experiment from time to time to get to know it. I think women are kind of maybe better at it than men because of our menstrual cycles and the fact that, you know, we, we're the ones that get pregnant. But yeah, I, I really encourage everybody to try stuff like that out um, and see what they conclude. So I'll just end this with you by saying, first of all, it's been an honor and a bit of a dream come true to have you on. I've, I'm just such a fan of everything you put out there. This is what I do with all my guests at the end of every episode. I would love for you to just leave my audience with any last words of wisdom or thoughts that you think that, you know, they might benefit from sitting with for a while and also promote anything and everything you want to promote because you put out the best info out there. So go for it. Wow. So some life advice. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'll do, I, I'll do this only because I, I love studying leadership and 
management stuff. I don't know how many of your people are in management positions, but this is just what I've been focusing on lately and trying to trying to teach my research team. A good leader makes everybody else's job easier. So I think a good leader sees problems that their subordinates will have, and it's the leader's job to kind of eliminate them. So that's something that I, I try to, when I'm leading my team, I focus on that. And I know that was very niche. No, I loved it. Oh, and it's something to promote. I guess my Instagram, I am working on a physique, accredited physique course. It'll probably be a diploma. Um, I'm working on that with Lane Norton. So we hope that that will come out possibly towards the end of 2021. (gasps) I'm on, I'm in, done, sold. (laughs) Oh, I'm telling you, it's, we have been working hard um on that so it's it's going to be like a life's work for me oh i think it will be worth it because i'm like that's it i'm doing it done (laughs) yeah it's it's literally we're looking at and obviously it'll be evidence-based but we're looking at every single study that we can that's focusing on really just muscle gain and fat loss so all of lane's stuff my research you know diet breaks reverse diets Um, How much weight should you lift? How many days per week should you lift? Should you walk for your cardio? Should you do high intensity interval training for your cardio? Everything, but with the sole focus of physique, not performance, not health. It's, it's the everything extracted in this one course. Wow. I'm doing it. I'm excited. I'm it's happening. All right, Bill. Thank you so much. Go be science And uh, I really hope that we get you back on series four in a few months time because this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. You are welcome. That does it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to hit that subscribe button or that follow link so that you can be notified as soon as new episodes are released. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Chloe for more health and fitness posts. I thought personally if I got it, I'd be fine. Young people and sports people, we think we'd be okay, but the truth is that it can hit any of us hard. Like, I hate not being able to play GA, not go out and socialise with my friends. The sacrifices are the only way, so we really need to help each other along the way. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Podcast Network.